0: to Look-See, the podcast for the art curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. This past March, sound artist Maria Chavez visited Richmond for a 10-day artist residency at the University of Richmond and to kick off Sound Arts Richmond, a citywide sound arts festival that continues through August of this year. Born in Lima, Peru, Chavez is an abstract turntablist, sound artist, and DJ. Accidents, coincidence, and failures are themes that unite her sound art sculptures, installations, and other works with her solo turntable performance practice. I spoke with her as she was installing Topography of Sound, Peaks and Valleys. It's a solo exhibition of new paintings and illustrations based on microscopic images of vinyl and needle. Chavez chose to show this work as 2D rather than as a sound installation, because in the sound arts world and in the art markets right now, the expectation is that sound art can only be emitted sound from a speaker or from a person. And as you'll hear, Chavez is not a person who likes to be boxed in by external expectations. So a question that I wrestle with right now is really, what is sound art? as opposed to music, for example, or as opposed to natural sound. Can you briefly address that and explain
1: for you what is sound art in your practice? Absolutely. For me, I view music and sound as two separate things. Music is an organized form of sound using a graphic score, This, in, in this particular case, composition with a notation. And that form of... Performance practice and composition practice is solely focused on creating some kind of a melodic idea. I almost consider it as legible sonic ideas that form together and make sense to the ear. If with sound art it's a bit more conceptual, it's dealing with sound as a whole. So there's different ways you can look at breaking all of these uh, categories apart. You have regular pop music going into classical music, which is dealing with musicians that are honed their craft for decades um, and participate in performing really complicated compositions from well-known composers, whether from the 16th century or today, into composers that create new music, and that being uh, composition practice that doesn't necessarily deal with notation, can deal with graphic scores such as um, imagery, where the performer reacts to the image uh, with sound or w- with a musical approach. From there, you go into experimental music where things are a little bit more ambient or sometimes nuanced or dealing with silence. And then from the experimental music world comes sound art. A lot of works deal with spatialized sound, many speaker configurations to create a sonic environment for a listener to enter and participate. Or in the case of field recording, creating almost a, a sonic photograph in order for the public to listen to a space that they otherwise wouldn't visit or participate in. And even still with sound art, going into the more conceptual side of sound art where deals with the individual listener's perspective and making things more participatory and interactive, but at the same time still questioning why certain sounds are difficult to listen to. So in my abstract turntablism performances, a majority of the work is really meant to deal with the sound of malfunction. So ultimately what I'm doing in my performances is, is I'm dragging a needle across the grooves of a record, which technically as DJs you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to take care of your equipment and allow things to you know, be perfect and sound right, quote-unquote right. And my work is questioning why these sounds are wrong. And if a sound sounds wrong to you, can it ever redeem itself? Is there ever a moment where you can re-listen to a sound that you originally thought was wrong and consider it right. For my own practice right now, I'm mostly interested in questioning what good and bad even means to society when it comes to sound, and of course, uh, challenging the art market to uh, question why sound art can only be considered emitted sound in a gallery space. You are an abstract turntablist. And so each
0: one of those words, I think, has a specific meaning, both in your
1: field, but also to you individually. Well, in in my particular case as a turntablist, when you think about the history of turntablism, it actually spans a lot further into the early 20th century than people realize. The general public, or the general ear, I should say, is only familiar with hip-hop turntablism. But turntablism has been around since the gramophone was invented, and even before that. A list is, is a performer individual that looks at the turntable as an instrument rather than as a playback technology. The turntable was invented as a playback technology for the general public to be able to listen to music without an individual being there to play it for them. But then as the object evolved, and the creativity of, of humans evolved as well, people began to start playing with the mechanism of the turntable. And in the 50s, we have the landscape series from John Cage, Pierre Schaefer, and his splice tape series with uh, Musique Concrete. And then later on, the hip-hop turntablism, where DJs would take disco records and find interesting samples to mix into and then have an MC speak over the samples to make a new song. So hip-hop is actually, in my perspective, hip-hop turntablism especially, but the whole hip-hop genre are responsible for making music concrete pop music. I feel like they're actually modern music concrete artists, but because they're African-American, the art world, of course, is discriminatory and only calls them urban. Also because they created an entire new genre of music for the music industry to profit off of, so, you know. With that, they lose their artistic cachet. But I hope someday we can rewrite the history books to include certain early hip-hop turntables to be considered in the canon of musique concrète. But with hip-hop turntablism, what they're doing is they're they're taking legible samples. So the most popular would be Chic, uh, Le Freak, the bass line. And then there would be... Grandmaster Flash that then took the chic album and then took this one particular bass line and then looped it and was able to uh, do that by hand. And by manipulating the turntable by hand to loop this particular sample he evolved the turntable practice into using the turntable as an instrument. Going into the more experimental world of turntablism, Christian Marclay was also experimenting with the turntable in the early 80s. He actually created the turntable guitar, which is a turntable that you hold like a guitar, and and the fretboard determines the speed, and then the hand manipulates the record. And he was still dealing with legible samples, but then he started to just be really carefree about not just what sounds were being picked up from the needle that was playing the record, but also the electroacoustic sounds that are on the surface area of the record itself. And now, coming into this century with my practice and quite a few other artists based out of Europe, my whole intention is to create sonic sculptures that aren't necessarily trying to sample records for people to recognize. What I'm trying to do is pull out tiny moments and recreate those sounds to give them a new presence. So I can't really improvise with classical music records or rock records. As soon as you play one second, you know that it sounds like this. So those records are difficult to manipulate, whereas Other records, test tone records that are now obsolete in the 21st century because the test tone records were really meant to fix record players to make sure they were working in the 60s and 70s. Since those are obsolete, I can now take those test tone records and manipulate those, and people won't know what the records are. Sound effects records from uh, radio times in the 60s and 70s that now radios don't use anymore because they have MP3s. I also like to use those as well. And then, of course, I have people that come to my performances and bring me records to to break or to ruin. And oftentimes it's them on the record. And normally when that happens during a performance, I make sure to perform it in front of them. And I let the audience know, I've just been given this record. You've never heard it. I've never heard it either. Let's sit together and see what I can make from it and see if something can come out of it. And that way, not only am I breaking this myth of turntablism having to be this legible sample for the sake of musicality. It's more taking it apart and dissecting it, also incorporating deterioration and time into the practice in order to sculpt new moments that the work can evolve from. So you use the, this idea of sculpture or sculpting
0: sound, creating sound sculptures. Do you think of sound as a three-dimensional medium the same way that a piece of marble
1: is? Absolutely, because ultimately what sound is is vibration through space. It's physics. Even though it's invisible, you can still feel it. With sound as a medium, it is a physical being in a space, but it's it's beautiful too because it's ephemeral and it disappears as soon as it exists. So I call them sound sculptures because physically for that moment, I'm not only sculpting the sound with the vibrations being emitted from the speakers, but I'm also choosing and scu- re-sculpting the, the physical playback technology itself so that every time I play it, it's going to sound a little different and a little different. So what drew you to
0: using sound as the raw material for your creative practice as an artist?
1: Well, uh, I started off as a DJ. I became a DJ when I was really young. I was 16 years old when I started. And by the time I was 17, I was playing professionally in Houston. I remember going to my first rave when I was 16 and standing in line and watching the DJs carry their equipment in the front door and me realizing, like, I don't belong here. I belong there with them. I was very passionate about French disco house and techno, but of course, this was the late 90s. At the time, it was a very sexist scene, whereas now there's a lot of women around, but then women got got threatened and were told on a regular basis, myself included, that women can't DJ. And after about four years of struggling with the sexism, I just reached a point where I had to stop because I was looking for something more creative than just DJing techno or DJing house. I I wanted to see where this was going to take the movement of uh, DJ practice. And none of the other guys seemed to be really interested in that. They just wanted to be DJs. And so one day I decided to trick everyone at the club and tell them that I was going to DJ a minimal techno set, but I ended up just DJing the ends of the records where the sticker is at the end of the record that's closest to the spindle hole. It's one locked groove and it makes a rhythm. And so I didn't tell anyone and I started mixing these ends together. I just wanted to hear it in a group. I was just trying to be as creative as I could and I was 19 at the time and the club manager caught wind of what I was doing and immediately kicked me out and said, you're never DJing in Houston again. And he was right. I haven't DJed in Houston since then. I actually just DJed my first time there last week. And so it's been 17 years. So it's still a very difficult scene there. Even going back and having DJed all over the world, I still have to prove myself there. It's, it's a very funny scene. So that w- one of the reasons why I was moving away from it was because of the treatment that I was receiving. And also, I just wasn't feeling inspired anymore by the work. And I knew there was something more. So then when I started to hear free jazz and free improvisation music. I didn't really understand it and I found it very challenging. So I went to a concert held in Houston by this man who ended up becoming my first mentor, David Dove who's an improvised trombone player and he hosted this free jazz show and it was a fantastic show and I didn't understand why it was fantastic. But I wanted to understand. So I approached Dave and I asked him if I could have an internship with his organization. And Dave said, well If you want to intern, you have to take my improvisation class. And I was like, well, I'm a DJ. I don't play an instrument. I'm not a musician. And he said, well, bring a turntable, and let's see what happens. And it completely changed my life. We improvised together in the first class that I brought my turntable to. And I finally got to understand what improvisation was all about, which is deep listening, listening to a space, thinking about your placement within the space, struggling with your ego to confront silence. And once we had this first improvisation meeting, I just knew that I had found what I was looking for. I immediately quit DJing altogether and just focused on my turntablism. Now, when I look at the turntable and how I use the turntable, I feel like the turntable was really more of a tool for me to understand the avant-garde world and the art world and how my creativity can evolve within it. I feel like I've honed my craft as a turntablist for the past I want to say eight, ten years, I've been just focusing on creating sound installation, challenging myself with different kinds of exhibitions, and now the DJing came back to me. I wasn't seeking it out. I had an exhibition in Basel at the House for Elektronische Kunstto where they had the full DJ set up, but they forgot to hire a DJ. And I was like, oh... I can do it if you guys want. They're like, oh, really? And it ended up being this amazing party. Now I've been DJing professionally all over the world, and so now it's really great to have that side of my work with the avant-garde sound and exhibition side. It confuses a lot of people, which I love, but... That's
0: just a really powerful story, and it really makes me wish that I was at that party.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you know, you let something that you love go... And if it comes back, it was meant to be. That, yeah. That's how it was for me. And now, of course, DJing back in Houston again, that was a really special, special moment. But of course, the boys didn't like that I threw such a great party. <laughs> so.
0: We started talking a little bit at the beginning, and you've said several times that the exhibition that you're in the process of installing here at University of Richmond is mostly 2D mm-hmm. drawings and paintings yes. on paper. That is a response to a forced boxing in of sound art as solely emitting sound, audible sound. So tell me a little bit more about how that came about and what it means for you as an artist.
1: I've been dealing with soundless sound installations for about two or three years now. I started with a series of sculptures, Absorption Foam sculptures. An anechoic chamber is a space that tries to create complete silence, which is impossible so you have these wedges that are these unique shapes that stick out from a wall made of a very very dense foam that's meant to suck in as much sound as possible so that when you enter it's the cleanest room that you can find there's a few in america and a few in the uk so i wanted to take those foam wedges out of the room and see how they would treat a space in a different way making them into physical filters of a space and when you place a foam wedge right next to your ear it almost feels like the sound is being sucked out of your ear and you can almost feel it pulling. And so I wanted to see how I could recreate that experience for people without being too complicated with audio technical descriptions. So for this show in particular, I wanted it to reflect landscape portraiture from the 19th and 20th century so that if someone that doesn't know anything about sound can still walk in here and be like, oh, that's a nice canyon. My focus has sort of been two-tiered, one to present work to the general public that isn't so complicated that they feel excluded, and the other to question how to create sound installations that don't exactly utilize sound in one direction. It also embraces it in another. So the drawings
0: and paintings that are in this exhibition, are they directly related to sound in some way?
1: Well, because I wanted to reflect on this old painterly style of uh, landscape portraiture painting, I used stock images of magnified records and tips of needles. So I decided to use these images as an advisor of the paintings that you see here in the exhibition. I'm not trying to mimic exactly what the image is. It's really more readapting the image to a different medium that has this this painterly image of of an old way of looking at landscape. I took these images and I chose uh, advertisements from needle companies from the 60s, old stock images from magnified grooves of records, 40,000%, which is really difficult to be able to do on your own. And I took them as an advice, as an example, and then readapted it into a painterly language.
0: Can we walk around and look at a couple of them? So you have to orient me, because right now we're looking at them lying on the floor, most of them getting ready to be installed, and so they may be right set up, they may be upside down. <laughs> <laughs> and on this side of the room, these look like paintings. Is that right? Yes,
1: <laughs> yes they are. <laughs> uh, all of the paintings are derived from either sumi ink, watercolor, or graphite. So the image that we're looking at right now is a vinyl groove made from Sumi ink. It's a very simple approach to the groove. I really wanted to show the waviness of the groove itself. And if you think about the size of the image, this groove is really like a milli, 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 millisecond of of a record. So what you're looking at is very much about this topography of the vinyl record. And I chose these materials, watercolor and sumi ink and graphite, because I felt like they translated the best when it came to the motion of how these grooves looked like. As we move on to these other ones, these are upside down. So if you want to stand over there. This is a watercolor trio, I call them, of uh, advertisement from the 60s for a particular needle made of diamond. So in the advertisement, there are black and white images of a needle that was comprised of osimium, that was played after 50 hours. That's the purple one there. Uh, as you can see, by the slant of the needle, it couldn't handle the play of 50 hours. It, it wore down too much. The middle one is sapphire. This was also played after 50 hours. And as you can see, the tip has already been worn down. So that also is not a good material to play back records with. And then we have the yellow watercolor peak, which is diamond. And this was played after 1,000 hours. And it still kept its shape. So this was originally meant to sell the needles as the best quality to handle uh, many plays. And I wanted to readapt the shapes of the different materials in watercolor form to make them look more like mountainous peaks. To me, I see them as a mountain range. Well, and one of the
0: things that I think is so interesting about this is that at one time, record players, turntables, needles were so important that they had these very kind of technical photographs of the record needles as advertisements. And that is something that is so far removed from where we are now in this digital
1: age. Well, if you think about the record as a playback technology in the history of it, the record player has been the longest living playback technology that's developed since the late 19th century. During the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was this whole market of hi-fi market, trying to get the best sound and trying to figure out how to make a vinyl record sound its most optimum. So that would would mean the material of the vinyl that you're cutting into, the type of groove that was cut into it, along with the type of needle that was placed into each groove of the record. So that's why there's all of these really interesting advertisements that are now obsolete and don't don't really matter anymore, because now there's an industry standard needle. But if you think about the turntable, it is the playback technology hero. It's the only playback technology that is still relevant in the 21st century. You don't have cassettes, you don't have CDs, you still have MP3s but the turntable you can find in any club anywhere around the world. My sense is, in a way, this is almost sort of like a love song to the turntable of how valuable it is and and how important it is because it's been able to be readapted in so many different ways throughout an entire century.
0: I love the tactile nature of it and the fact that you can control it. It has a sensual kind of experience. It it, It just is such a different experience than Spotify. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think the key word here is the tactileness of it. It's all about hand manipulation and holding it and feeling how these sounds get emitted from the groove and oscillates into the needle that then transmits into sound. Humans are tactile, and I think that's why the turntable has stuck around for as long as it has because there is something to the oscillation with the needle and the groove that sends a better sound to the ear. I also admire the instability of the turntable itself. You can mess up so many times and it really incorporates chance when you're starting to break records and put them on and everything goes awry. And And so that, that's one of the things that has kept me interested in the turntable is this tactileness and also the turntable's ability to keep me focused and keep me interested because nothing is ever going to be exactly the way I want it. Even though I know where a sound is on a record, I don't know if that sound is going to be what I'm wanting. And that's Ultimately, what I'm trying to do with my turntableism practice is it's not playing sounds that I'm familiar with, it's pulling out the sounds that the turntable wants us to hear in an audience in present moment. So, I was
0: going to ask you about this idea of chance mm-hmm. that seems to be a theme that runs throughout your work. Mm-hmm. And so, that's clearly very important to you in your turntable practice. Mm-hmm. How does that translate into your practice that we see in the
1: painting and drawing? I guess as far as chance is concerned, it would be taking the chance of having a painting show. I'm, I'm a college dropout. I never went to art school. And so in a way, the gesture is a chance, It's taking a chance and and trying to see if I can adapt these ideas to more 2D. And also to show it in a museum, It's it's a big chance to take. As far as chance in a performative way, I think, I think it's a little bit different because the format or the medium is completely different, which was an interesting process for me. I really had to, when I was working through all of these images and deciding the final images for the show, that was a real challenge for me to understand when something was finished or if something that messed up was really a mess up or not. So then I felt really challenged in that way, like, what is a wrong image on a flat piece of paper instead of thinking, what is a wrong sound that's being emitted towards me or that I'm hearing? I think also it's exciting to be able to show some early illustrations from my book that I wrote in 2012. It was a book based on my personal practice as an abstract turntablist. And I wrote a how-to book called Of Technique, Chance Procedures on Turntable. It was uh, designed by Riley Hooker, who is a very prominent graphic designer in New York City. And I self-published it because it wasn't really a book that I wanted to be popular. It was really more of a documentation of my turntablism work from up to that point because I was getting, again, really frustrated with people boxing me in and I said well I don't want to do this turntablism anymore so maybe I should write a book a how-to manual for other people to do it so that I don't have to do it anymore it actually backfired and it made me more of an expert somehow. Nope, that wasn't the intention at all. If you look at the illustrations, they're very simple. And I made the imagery very light and comical because I didn't want the book to be taken so seriously. The book as an object in itself is a sculpture because as people read it and learn the different techniques, they're also encouraged to tear out the images to make their own flashcards for their own turntable compositions. So it was very much about interaction and about how the book evolves and changes as you interact with it. To look at the book as as a sculpture has really advised me on on how to look at other objects outside of what they're meant for, like the turntable, and now like these images, to recreate them into landscape portraiture. And of course the hand is always involved because there's hand in my own turntable as a manipulation and now I'm trading that dexterity towards painting. So there's all of these different weaving and connections with all of the work. And so now we'll have a few sample images along with some iPads of past performances where I show you how I perform these techniques live in front of an audience. And I think somehow it all came together as a whole show. I'm hoping within the next 10 years, as the work continues to evolve, maybe all of these points can get clearer and clearer for people to see the different directions.
0: And there'll be more directions, I'm guessing, because it doesn't seem like you're a person who enjoys staying in the same place for too long creatively.
1: No, yeah, I'm definitely not comfortable when I'm comfortable. If I'm comfortable, then I'm too much invested in the ego of being good. I like to challenge that, whether it's morally or whether it's sonically. Good and bad are social constructs. When I perform a sound piece and it's a little too easy and everyone thinks it's good, then I got lazy and I need to really challenge myself and get myself out of that space or else I'm not cultivating my creativity anymore. I'm just trying to do a good job for praise. And those are two separate approaches artistically. And I like to think that I'm not one that's trying to make good art for people to like, but to make art to continue to challenge myself and my creativity. Because ultimately cultivating my, my relationship with creativity is really cultivating my instincts and my language with the present moment and and with chance. So if I start to get too comfortable, I might forget to be present. And if I forget to be present, then where am I within society? What is my role? Am I really trying to be part of a canon of work where we are constantly moving forward and challenging ourselves and each other?
0: Well, Maria, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you so much for the time for coming by. Hopefully you can come and see the show when the pieces are up. It'll be up until mid-May and then a few days later at Virginia Tech at the Moss Art Center I'll have a 4.1 sound installation um, as part of Steven Vitiello's group exhibition. It's going to be a very Virginia season. I'm very excited to be here.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of the look podcast. You can find more about the visual arts in Richmond, like our interviews with artists Chester Higgins and Nancy Bloom, and videos that take you into the studios of Richmond artists like Amy Oliver and Blair Klimo, on our website, look cco We also have a pretty good list of artful things to do in Richmond, so check it out. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening to the look podcast.